is appropriate and reverential. And, and I pray that you would uh, just be with the folks who are here. Help their, their hearts to be uh, fertile soil, Lord, that the, the seed of the word would find um, just, just good purchase there um, and grow into something, something that would be a, a, real, a real yield to the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. My, most of y'all know me fairly well. There are a lot of folks here who I don't know particularly well, uh, guests, and, and so uh, I'll tell you, I am a, uh, I'm a comic book fan. I, I, I'm old, but I'll, I'll probably be immature forever, um, um, and I, I am a, I'm an avid reader. I read comic books with my kids. The guy who owns the, the comic shop in Great Falls knows, knows me by name, um, and the, the employees all have a nickname for my daughter. Um, and, and I mean, we're, we're very active, um, as, as far as that hobby goes. And as I tried to come up with a good way to open this sermon and a good explanation for what we're about to dive into, um, I, I got to thinking about, uh, Captain America. You guys know Captain America, right? Um, he, uh, Captain America is a kind of a, a World War II era Invention, like he's this character that came out during World War II, and Captain America number one, the first you know Captain America comic book, is one of my favorite covers of all time, and I I have it. I'm going to put it up for you. Um, if you can't see it real well, this is Captain America punching Hitler in the face um, <laughs> during during the height of World War II. You know this is this is one of those things that people really gravitated to this idea of Captain America, you know, beating up the Nazis, right? And, and, like, we're all pretty clear, Captain America never punched Hitler in the face, right? But it, it didn't actually happen in real life, but, like, during times of war, during times of conflict, it's really common where you see folks depict the enemy in really negative or, like, characters' ways. Everybody with me? Um, I, one of my favorite commercials from the uh, 80s was a, was a, a fashion commercials for some clothing line, and they had like a Russian fashion show, you know, and everybody, the Cold War, and everybody hated Russia, and they, they had these very large Ukrainian women walk across the stage, like, and this is our beach wear, and it's like an outfit, and it's not a flattering outfit, it's gray, and, you know, and they've got like a beach ball and a shovel, you know, and they, you know, and then this is our at-home wear, and it's the same outfit, but something different, you know, that they're carrying, <laughs> and, you know, this is our evening wear, same outfit, different purse, you know, the joke is that, you know, all those bad Russians, they, you know, they, they have boring lives and their women are fat. Um, it, it's, it's, it, everybody kind of gets this idea, right? Like, like during conflict, we depict our enemy in bad ways. And as we dive into this section of Judges, um, I understand this is, the, the proper word is polemic. But, but basically, it is a really crass story making fun of the Moabites. Right, the Moabites were sort of relatives of the Jews, the the people of Israel. They were related. This is Abraham's um, nephew Lot, his descendants, and um, there's a lot of negative stuff in the scriptures. Like we see uh, Moab constantly made fun of. I can't, I, I during this era, I can't point to a single group that's made fun of in a similar way without getting in trouble. Um, but, but like these guys, there's a stereotype about them. They make fun of them constantly. And in fact, actually, the origin of Moab is like, like depicted in the book of uh, Genesis when uh, Lot, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
flees into the mountains and hides in a cave. And his daughters are like, well, how are we going to have kids now? Because having kids is important. If you don't have kids, you have nobody to take care of you when you get old. So they get their father drunk and have children by their father. And the implication is everybody who's a Moabite is inbred. I can make fun of West Virginia, right? Uh, Or Missouri. Everybody from Missouri is. (laughs) Michael is from Missouri. (laughs) He's got an extra toe. Um, (laughs) um, So... So as we dive into this, understand this is part of a great tradition of mocking the Moabites, right? And this is a crass story. I've been pondering all week how I would get through this without saying something offensive. And there's no way. So I'm going to apologize up front. Um, Buckle in. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure there'll be form letters in the back for complaining about my... My inappropriateness. Um, So as we dive into Judges, uh, this is the second judge. This is um, Ehud is the guy, right? And Ehud is the second judge. And as a reminder, as the book goes, the first judge was awesome. And then they progressively get worse and worse and worse and worse. Because the point of the book is that um, the people of Israel, like as they settled into the promised land, they failed to drive out the Canaanites, they live amongst them, and they become Canaanized. Like they become like the pagans. They give up all their beliefs and they throw away everything that they hold dear. And they basically abandon God and they become pagans. And so, like, this is the next step in the process. Um, and, and so this guy is all right, but he's not as good as Othniel, who was last week. Othniel was awesome. This guy is less than awesome. So as we get into it, the people of Israel did, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. So there's a handful of things here. First off, Eglon is the opposing king. And Eglon, the name means... Um, baby bull, right? And baby bull, like his name, um, given in this text, like the reason we're getting this is baby bull means fat but not strong. Everybody got it? Um, because the recurring theme here is that the Moabites are all fat. Like we're going to hear it over and over again. Sometimes it's hidden in the language, but like, like Eglon, by the way, Eglon is also, if you jump into Hebrew, right? It's sort of an alliteration of the word rotund. And so he is baby bull, he's fat and weak, but he's also just fat. And so like the story out of the gate is making fun of him, right? Like, like it is, it is, they're, they're taking a swipe at him. And it, for the Jewish people, this would have been a very funny story. It's actually a very funny story for us too. Um, and we'll, we'll keep going here. Um, the city of Palms, real quick, is the other explanation I'm going to give here. The city of Palms, this is Jericho, right? And the reason that it's called the city of Palms is because it is in the middle of a desert. It's like the only place that grows. It's like an oasis in the desert. And he would have taken this spot because it would have been a nice place, probably nicer than where he came from. He was living in where the, the wilderness area, like Moab is in the wilderness, where... Um, the Jewish people wandered for 40 years, right? And actually, the Jewish people weren't even allowed to cut through Moab on their way to the Promised Land. God made them go around because 
it was Lot's territory, and God gave Lot that territory, and so you people can't even encroach on it. Now, that doesn't stop the Moabites from coming along and encroaching on the Jewish territory, but neither here nor there. They're there. He has conquered. He sets up shop in the city of Palms, and he's there for 18 years. Now, the other thing that's worth noting with the city of Palms, last thing, and we'll jump to the next slide. Anybody know how Jericho was conquered? How? With the marching and the horns, right? Yes, for seven days. They marched around the city for seven days and blew horns. It was the weirdest battle plan in history, right? They blew their horns, and after seven days, the walls of Jericho, which were so wide, they raced chariots around them. And actually, they found, like, archaeological, like, they've dug up these walls, and they were big enough to race chariots around. This was an impenetrable city. There was no way they were going to conquer it. And so they blew their horns. They marched around for seven days, and the walls collapsed, and the, you know, the, the army invaded, and they took the city. And so, like, we have an example the first time we encountered Jericho of, like, Joshua trusting God straight up, right? He did exactly what God wanted him to do. This was not a practical battle planned. It was not, you know, this was a, a God makes the call, we're going to do it. Now, there's a contrast here, and we're going to come back to it, okay? Um, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, mind you, we talked about this before. The way the word cried out to the Lord is they're not apologizing for doing evil. They're not sorry, like, oh, God, we messed up. We're so sorry. This is, oh, God, this is awful. Please save us, right? Any of you ever watch your kids get into trouble and they're miserable because of the trouble they got in? They're not sorry they did it, but they want out? That's this. And um, God being compassionate, and he loves his people. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. By the way, Ehud means, where is the glory? Right? And it's sort of a depiction. We see names like this throughout Judges because it's really despondent. People aren't real excited. It's sort of a, a malaise. I think there was a president who called it a malaise, right? Um, that is where these people are. They're not happy. They're not excited. Nothing good is happening. They've been in subjugation for 18 years. There's a long time to be slaves to a foreign nation. Um, and so God raises up Ehud. Where is the glory? The son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, there's a joke there. Everybody got it, right? <laughs> Benjamin um, means son of my right hand, right? And Ehud is left-handed. <laughs> and the reason that that is mentioned, first off, a left-handed man was a man who was probably trained to fight with both hands in battle. So this is a guy who is like a tough son of a gun, right? Um, he's a guy who can fight, um, and he's left-handed. He's the opposite of the Benjamites. Um, earlier in history, later in this book, the Benjamites did some pretty nasty stuff, and they turned the entire nation against them, and they basically got wiped out. And so like the Benjamites, their name is Mud. And then actually throughout the text, we're going to find where Benjamin is pretty spoken ill of. Like, we don't see good things about the tribe of Benjamin. And so saying that he's left-handed means he ain't like these other Benjamites, right? Um, and so this left-handed man, sometimes preachers will say, oh, he's left-handed because he's dishonest. That's actually not what it would have meant in the original context, but that's probably where we get the idea from, of left-handed people being dishonest. Um, there are left-handers here, right? Just telling you, you're not dishonest. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't know what to say about that. Um, <laughs> the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Um, 
And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit long. A cubit's about 18 inches. It's um, like before standard measurements. It was the distance between your finger and your elbow. Got it? So he made a dagger, like a serious stabbing weapon. Two edges means he intends to stab with it, right? In the ancient world, if you had a single-edged sword, you slashed. A double-edged sword was was a pointy thing you stuck, right? So this 18-inch long dagger that he has, um, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. Um, Hold on, my right and left. Inside his thigh, right? Um, He put it there because they weren't going to search him in that area on his right side because most people were right-handed. And so they would keep their weapon on their left side so you could draw it quickly. Also, it's inside, so they're not checking there, right? Like, if you can avoid it, you would. Um, So he hides this knife on his thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, they've dug up houses in this area, and the way this would have been, this palace, like the summer home for Eglon, um, there would have been a throne room at the top of a set of stairs and a long stairway down, and at the bottom you would have a presenting room, right? And there would be a basement underneath all of it. And so... Um, he goes in there at the bottom of the stairs with the king on his throne at the top. He would have presented his tribute. Hey, we belong to you. You're the man. We love you. Here's our money. We'll go now. And so, he, you know, he is, he is made right with the king. Um, he presents his tribute and he leaves. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Here's another one where, like, the language betrays us a little bit. Eglon is a very fat man. The phrase fat man in Hebrew, basically means he was a fattened calf ready to be slaughtered. <laughs> okay? The text is not being nice to him. Right? They are making, he is a very, very obese man, and he is ready to be killed. Um, and we know this is coming, and it's all this buildup, right? And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all the attendants went out from his presence. So they go partway home. They reach some idols that were well-known because, like, the Jewish people have idols now because they're pagans. Like, it sort of underlies the point that these guys are awful. Sends the rest of the guys, I'm going back. Goes back. I have a secret message, or I have a message from you, for you. Um, And the king is really moved by this, right? Um, There's a joke there as well. I have a secret message for you. Message could mean I have a message from the Lord, right? I have a message, a word for you. Message could also mean a thing. What's the thing he has for him? A dagger, (laughs) right? And the king assumes, well, that's fantastic. It's for me. You know, he says silence. And the servants are dumb, so they leave. Anybody in their right mind is not going to walk away from their king in the presence of an enemy, like, like soldier. Um, but these guys are dumb. Um, part of the reason probably also, this is probably the same day, so they know this guy, and he's already given tribute and everything else. But they're kind of obtuse. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Now, the way that this is understood, like there's all kinds of argument about what exactly happens here, what the choreography is. The king is probably sitting up top. He came to him alone at the bottom of the stairs. Um, And he's up there and he's down here. It's exactly the way it was before. And Ehud said, I have a message, meaning a thing, 
from God for you. And he arose from his seat. So Eglon begins to get up. Now, being a very large man, what happens when he gets up? Like he's unwieldy. He ain't moving easy, right? So he starts getting up, and he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. What likely happens at this point is, as the man's beginning to stand up, Ehud charges up the stairs, pulls the knife off his thigh, and because he's halfway up and halfway down, he's exposed. He can't defend himself. He can't, like probably his shirt pulled up a little bit and exposed his belly, made it even easier to stab him. And because he's running and he stabs with as much force as he can, um, and they uh, thrust into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he did not pull the sword out of the belly, and dung came out. Um, probably it had no hilt because it was hidden. It was like a stick, right? Runs up there, hits him with so much force, the knife goes in. This is a PG-13 sermon, by the way. I apologize. It's going to get worse in a second. Hold on. <laughs> And he hits him with so much force, and the man is so fat that he loses the knife. And he doesn't pull it out partially also because, like, how's he going to take it with him without being covered in blood, right? Um, so he pulls it out, and the man soils himself. Um, this is an advantage to Eglon, or to Ehud, not to Eglon. Eglon has no advantages anymore. Um, he soils himself. This is also a reference to the privy. At the top of these buildings, in the back corner, there would have been a little room, right? The bathroom. It was the executive bathroom, if you will. And so he, he goes, um, like this, this dung came out thing is a reference. Like it implies that there's a bathroom nearby. Um, it's sort of the general consensus amongst um, interpreters. Um, and so like suddenly the room is quite unpleasant. Um, then Ehud went from the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now, this is an interpretive decision because he could not have locked them. Um, like, he, he probably locked them from the inside is actually what he probably did. And when it says that he left having closed the doors and locked them, he locked the doors from the inside and he dropped in the toilet into the basement, right? So now the throne room is locked. And he had to get out of the throne room if he was going to have it locked from the inside because it's not like now. Doors were pretty primitive. Um, you locked it from the inside or you didn't. He locks the door. He drops into the toilet. He comes out into the lobby. And nobody's aware of what's happened, right? Um, the king is dead on the floor upstairs. Ehud is in the lobby. Um, and when he, or excuse me, from the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So they smell the mess that he's made, right? And they assume, well, he's in the bathroom, right? And him being a very large man, apparently he had some digestional issues. Um... <laughs> And so he stays there for quite a while. When he had gone, the servants came. Oh, um, they thought surely he is in the, uh, relieving himself in the closet chamber. All right, so he's up there. He's probably in the bathroom, the guards think. They're not very bright either. And they waited till they were embarrassed. So they hung out, and they're like, man, he's been in there a while. What do, what do we do? Um, well, he's in the bathroom. What do we do? You know, do we interrupt him in the bathroom? Do we... You know, but when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there 
lay the Lord dead on the floor. They open the door and he's, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do now? But there's a long delay, right? The long delay is, well, he's in the bathroom and they wait. Well, let's go get the key and they wait. They finally open the door and, oh man, we screwed up. Um, But this has given our hero, quote-unquote hero, plenty of time to get away, right? Um, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. Um, And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. So he rallies the army during the confusion, right? So he's delivered his people up until this point. Did anybody notice what hasn't been mentioned? But God hasn't come up once, right? God raised up the enemy, God raised up Ehud, but God did not, like, assist him or accompany him or give him strength or give him wisdom because, like, basically what this guy did was he went into the enemy camp and he assassinated the enemy leader, right? Um, In a place where... One of the greatest battles was fought because the people listened to God and fought a straight-up battle like having trusted God to deliver them. There's a contrast here because what Ehud has done at this point is Ehud won, but he cheated to win. Um, He's a hero, but he's not really a hero. He's an assassin. He's he's dishonest. He's, He's done a good thing, and he's risked a great deal to do it, but he didn't trust God to do it. Right? He didn't turn to God. He didn't pray. He didn't ask for God's assistance. He didn't anything. He just went and, like, killed a fat guy and, and escaped. I mean, that's, this is all he's done. Um, and he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. This is the first time we find out that God is on their side. Right? This is the first time anybody acknowledges God in this whole exchange. And, and like, the reason for that is, is because God had nothing. I mean, he had something to do because he picked out this guy. But this guy said, well, God gave me a job to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. And when I'm done, God will help me clean up the mess. And that's actually exactly what happened. Um, so they went down after him and seized the fjords fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. By the way, the reason they seized these fords is because this is the way you ran away to your homeland if you were a Moabite. So instead of attacking the army, they came up behind them, they captured the escape route, cut the Moabite army in half because half of them would have been in the homeland and half of them would have been at the city of Palms. So he split the army in the middle um, and did not allow anyone to pass over. So they didn't let him escape. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. Now, this is a funny number. We see it over and over again in the Bible, but like 10,000, this is roughly like saying a whole mess of them, right? It's a figure of speech in ancient Hebrew. It means they basically killed a mess of them. They killed a lot of the enemy. It could have been 10,000 people, right? Um, But it could have been just a mess of them. It's hard to say because it's a figure of speech. Like there's nuance in language, Um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about fixing a tractor, and they said, man, I spent like a million dollars on that. Anybody spend a million dollars on a tractor? I mean, like a pretty nice tractor, right? <laughs> I know Larry did. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs> um, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's 10,000. They killed all of the enemy. No one escaped this. All strong, able-bodied men. By the way, strong, able-bodied men... Is a, is a nice way of saying they were all fat. 
Like, this is another spot where the Hebrew basically said they were like olive oil. They, and, like, the assumption is they were stout. <laughs> so they went and killed all of these stout men. <laughs> um, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had a rest for 80 years. So we get two-plus generations of quiet, right? Um, now, what do we do with this, right? Um, there's a difference between prescriptive and proscriptives in the Bible, right? Prescriptives means do this. Proscriptives means this is what happened, right? This is an example of this is what happened. Please no one, mur- please do not like stab your, your neighbor in the bathroom. Okay, this is like not an example to follow. Um, what we actually get out of this is this guy accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish. He was sort of a hero, but he accomplished it without God's help because he did it his way. He wasn't interested in what God wanted. He was interested in getting the job done, and so he did it his way of doing things. Um, we serve a God who is capable of great things, right? We serve a God who will do amazing things. Um, we serve a God who um, is capable of saving his people, of, of delivering the world, of digging you out of the mess you're in, of fixing every broken thing in your life. He is capable of all those things, but we kind of got to work with him. There are folks who will say, I'm going to do things God's way as soon as I'm done. Um, that's a big trend in churches in the last couple generations where they, they do all kinds of things that are sort of less than biblical. And in the process they say, well, you know, this is an end or this is a means, but the end is to draw people in and will like convert people when they get in the door. That's, that's not really the way we're supposed to do stuff, right? Um, Jesus, our, our Savior, like our model, because we talked about that in the beginning of this series, Judges, right? Like Jesus is the model, and that's why um, Othniel, the first one, is like so parallel to Jesus. He was last week's sermon. Sorry, guys, if you weren't here, it's online if you want to listen to it. Um, but he's like sort of this ideal version of what we're supposed to be. Like, like there's all these parallels between him and Jesus, and Jesus is this model for us. And when Jesus delivers us, he doesn't ever, like, bow, like back down from anyone, right? People call him out on stuff. He says, well, yeah, you're going to try and kill me? Go ahead. But here's what I have to say to you, right? Um, he, he doesn't save us through trickery. He doesn't save us through lying. He saves us through, like, straight up dying for our sins, through obeying God and doing it God's way. Um, like he, he takes our punishment instead of taking the back route. And he has the option to, actually. If you look at the temptation, Satan comes to him and says, Hey, bow down to me once. Bow down to me once, and you can have the whole world without a fight. Um, Ehud gets the whole world without a fight. He got it, but he didn't do it right. Um, well, how do we do this? Like, what are examples of this? Um, How many of y'all prayed for more than 30 minutes this week in total? It was like three of us, right? I'm not trying to knock on you, okay? Like, I'm, I'm awful at praying. This is a struggle for me. Because to my mind, I wake up in the morning and I say, these are the work items I have to do. Right? Any of y'all do this? And if I do these work items, God will provide through my work. And there's truth in that. But God provides through our work and our relationship with him. We walk with him, and he provides because we walk with him. Um, The meaning of the work we do 
is there and our growth spiritually is there and the greater significance in life is there because God walks with us in it, right? Um, I, I love being married. I've been married for 18 years this Monday, right? Which means I have managed to trick my wife for 18 years into thinking I'm an okay guy enough to stay married to me, right? It wasn't until I figured out that I needed to walk with Jesus as a part of walking with my wife that my marriage took a whole different meaning, right? Um, The same is true of work. When I started working as a youth minister, I put in 80, 90 hours a week, right? I grew a youth ministry larger than most churches, Um, but I did it my way. Instead of praying and like seeking God's will and doing things, I was like, well, this will work. Hey, this will draw people in. Hey, this will be successful. And before you knew it, we had a church, a youth ministry that was bigger than the church. We paid the church's budget out of our budget frequently. Like we were very successful. But the failure on my part, and I say this honestly, is I didn't look for God. I didn't walk with him in the process. And so my work was my work. Um, the past few weeks, I've been stuck on Psalm 1. I'm going to come back around to it, preach a sermon on it before we started Judges, um, because it is, well, there's a lot to it. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to share it with you all, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. Um, some of you all have farming to do, I think, right? No. That time of year's over, right? Not until you put seeds in the ground again. Um, This is Psalm 1, the very beginning, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands not, or nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the way of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and leaf, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Um, For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. Um, What Psalm 1 is telling us, and it's a bit of wisdom there, it's saying, listen, we have our choices. We can hang out in the way that evil people do things. We can compromise on God's plan and do things our way. Um, But if you do that, you're going to be like chaff in the field. If you watch the combines going, right, what are they doing? They're blowing the chaff away. It is basically a giant fan and a thresher, right? And it blows away all the chaff. Um, That's what happens with the wicked. Like this is the work I did years ago. So much of it blew away because I wasn't looking for God's deal. A big chunk of my early married years were like that because I focused on my way. And it all blew away in the end. Right? I, I look at all these years, I could have been like closer to my wife and closer to God, but I did things my way. Um, and over and over again, you're going to find this. I'm giving you my examples, but I'm betting there are folks in this room who are doing things their way. Right? I know what God wants me to do, but man, this is so much easier. I know what the scriptures command, but man, this way works right now. I know I should be talking to God and looking to him right now, but I can do that later because i got stuff to do. And God begins to fall down the wayside. And actually, it starts out little. I'm going to just hang out in the way of the wicked. Well, you know what? This is working all right. I'm going to walk in it. Well, hey, let's set up house and sit here because it feels like it's working. And it just creeps in on us. And we end up somewhere where we never intended to be. Um, The same is true of everything, right? And if we do this, the great things we accomplish in life will be nothing. Um, 
I'm not saying this because you've got to earn your salvation. Ultimately, a lot of people try to earn their salvation, and that's their way of being Ehud, right? I'll do things my way, but Jesus dies for us, so we don't have to work. We don't have to earn. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to believe and follow, and we're saved from every rotten thing we ever did. Um, but it all comes down to this. We have to follow. We have to take those teachings. We have to apply them to our lives, and we've got to do them his way. That means when someone is your enemy, you've got to pray for them. Gosh, you know how hard that is? Any you guys ever pray for somebody who really mistreats you? Anybody ever pray for a family member that you'd rather strangle? <laughs> you all just hang out and figure out the way to screw over your family member instead of praying for them? I've done that, so I'll own it. Um, I'm not a very good guy, guys. Um, but I'm getting better because Jesus is in me. Um, it means that um, when we are given... Um, things we're responsible for God before God with them. Um, it means that we are given a walk and a call to live in, and that's what we're supposed to do. Um, we don't cheat. We don't hide. We don't run away. We do things God's way, and God blesses us because of it. Now, blessing us doesn't mean you're going to end up rich. Sometimes it means you end up dead, right? Actually, there are 12 disciples. Um, Judas hung himself. John died of natural causes, and the other 10 we're skinned alive, heads cut off, stoned to death, crucified, etc. Because the blessing they received wasn't wealth. It was like intimacy with God. Um, my challenge to you this week as we go out of here, um, and I know a lot of you all have work to do, and you've got busy schedules ahead of you, and you've got messes to clean up, and you've got life to live. My challenge to you is in all of that, reflect and ask yourself, how much am I bothering to walk with God in any of this? Am I looking to him and asking, is this the right path for me to take? Am I considering his teachings as I like approach things? Do I even know him well enough to ask the question? Um, because I've met folks that that's the deal. They're like, well, I love Jesus. I've followed him my whole life, but they don't really know what Jesus teaches. And so it becomes just, well, it's there, but I don't bother with it, right? Um, my challenge for you is to look, examine, and ask, is the wind going to carry away everything I've done? Um, or am I like committed to following Jesus in this stuff? Let's close in prayer, and I'll, I'll let you all be. Heavenly Father, um, pray for your, your blessing on the folks here. I pray that um, your spirit would move in their hearts and and I know that I'm, I'm a little confused and all over the map this morning, Lord, but I, I pray that your spirit would, would work through it and that it would touch the hearts of those who are here and that, that you would inspire and convict and move, Lord, that people would, would um, just apply it, that they would seek out your way of doing things, that they would seek out your will, um, and that they would walk in, in your will and your way, not just in achieving your goals, not just in achieving their goals, but in obedience and intimate relationship with you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.